Hello, and welcome to the C21 podcast. My name is Jonathan Webdale. We hope you're safe and well wherever you may be. Today we hear from Sarah Edwards, Senior Vice President of International Creative Development at Sony Pictures Television, about the company's virtual formats showcase. And Nick Kerwin, co-founder of UK Indies Firefly and The Garden, about his investment and advisory vehicle Matisse. Sony Pictures Television is among the companies that would normally be taking part in an array of physical screenings, networking sessions and buyer meetings as part of the flurry of events that have sprung up in the UK in February around the annual BBC Studios showcase. But this year, with the pandemic pushing these activities online, the company is today hosting a virtual formats showcase following on from similar efforts during MIPCOM last year. Sony Pictures Television Senior Vice President of International Creative Development Sarah Edwards spoke to Ed Waller about the event, the titles the company has on offer and how the formats business has responded to the ongoing pandemic. After the seismic events of 2020, how how has the COVID-related production freeze, which disproportionately impacted drama production, how has that driven demand for unscripted formats? I have to say it's actually been very good for unscripted because I think it's just far more manageable to make unscripted content under the current COVID regulations. And I would say what happened in unscripted is there was an immediate knee-jerk reaction to come, in with, come up with formats that were all about COVID. And now the challenge is actually people don't want to look at formats about COVID, but we do still now when we develop have to pitch with COVID regulations in place and COVID budgeting and everything else. But because it's so much more self-contained and manageable and often you're in studios, we've just all had to adjust. There's just different minds in the budget now that are all COVID related. So it has actually seen, I think, a big resurgence of unscripted and that seems to be continuing. Are there any particular genres of unscripted that are in uh, more demand, uh, feel-good ones, for instance? or Definitely feel-good, but actually also nostalgia. So we have quite a big back catalogue of nostalgic shows like Pyramid, uh, you know, uh, Millionaire, Dragon's Den that are still on TV. And so what we're seeing is a lot of studio game shows. People want that because, again, that's really manageable. You can do high volume at relatively low cost. It's self-contained in a studio environment. It's also quite safe content. You're not going to offend anyone. And people, I think, just want to be taken out of the world that we're currently in. So we're definitely seeing a resurgence in studio game shows and definitely a resurgence in uh, popularity for our sort of old classic game show formats that people love. Were there any shows that you had in production that had to be delayed or postponed or cancelled that you could tell us about? No, we had a few in drama, but I'm not sure we had any in unscripted. We may have had a couple of delays. In fact, we've done a lot of production under the COVID regulations. So Millionaire has been produced. We've done quite a few reality shows under COVID. COVID. District Z, our great big zombie show was shot uh, under COVID. So we've persevered and we've just changed the way we do things. But actually, we've had a really good year. I'll come back to some of that because that's I want to I draw on that. But um, just, just looking at the way that lockdown has impacted the different parts of your business. How about development? Because obviously formats are born out of creative process. Is, does that work over Zoom? It's really interesting that actually, because I, I, as we know, necessity is the mother of invention. And when you are forced to think about filming things in a different way, that is when you see things start to happen. So I think from a creative point of view, it's really refreshed and reinvigorated quite a lot of our creatives. The two reasons, one is they've had the time to sit and develop, 
because they're not in a sort of machine of production all the time. And I think we've all had to look at things from a different angle. I think Zoom has been fine. I think we've all learned to deal with it. And I think if you are already in an established development team, then you have shorthand, you know how you work. I think where we will see challenges in the future is when you put new teams together. And I just think sometimes you just absolutely need to be in a room to throw ideas around. But um, I don't think it's ideal. But I, I would say from our point of view, from our creatives, we've seen a lot of just refreshment in how they develop and how they're looking at things. And as a result, I think come up with some really good new shows. Is it true that creativity thrives in these adverse conditions? I think without a shadow of a doubt. And I think if you ask any commissioner in the UK, they will say that they were really impressed with the very quick turnaround of ideas that came to them as soon as the lockdown happened. And I think initially it is true to say that a lot of them were loving lockdown or, you know, um, and I think now that's not the case. But I think that the response from the British creative community was strong and inventive in terms of coming forward with things that they could make under these conditions. So I think it's been really good for my part of the business in Unscripted. I think actually it's been a, it has been a good thing. I'm interested to hear about the, you know, the process of buying and selling usually in, in, in a previous life happened in Cannes or in LA or, you know, face to face. How does the actual process of pitching, buying and selling and negotiating, how does that change over Zoom? Well, do you know what I think is quite interesting is I'm not sure how many deals actually happened at MIP. I think we all enjoyed MIP because we got to see people and I do still think there's absolutely a place to be having face-to-face conversations. But I think even before the lockdown, deals were happening before MIP and after MIP. And in fact, the way that Sony handled it is we had a format fest, which actually went on far longer than the four or five years at MIP. It went on for a month. And as a result, we had far more meetings that were, I would say, were a lot more focused and got quite a lot of deals done. Again, I think these are existing relationships that people already have that have been established at MIP. So I think there will always be a necessity for us to drink rosé on the beach. Let's hope so. But I think that we have all adjusted to these virtual uh, showcases really, really well. And I think we even we've been really surprised at how well our format fest did. And I suspect if we talk to the other big buyers and sellers, they have found the same thing. I think we've just all pivoted into a different direction. I think in the future, you're going to see a mixture of both virtual markets, like we've just done, and actual MIPCOM type markets where we get to see each other face to face. Because I think at the moment, we're relying on existing relationships that have been built over a number of years. And as time goes on, we will have to build more relationships. And I think that is quite hard to do over Zoom. Obviously, the production process has changed. And and I want to ask you about how much more expensive it is to produce with all these COVID regulations. But are there strategies to mitigate that, like returning to sort of hub-based production models? I think certainly there is a line in a budget. There's a percentage now that you have to put in to cover your COVID costs for sure. And that's just become a substantive thing. I'm not sure hub productions necessarily help. When we look at District Z, that would have been the case five years ago if we'd made District Z. It's a massive show on a massive set. And it's it's hugely helpful for people to be able to come and shoot it on the French set. I would say that actually there are challenges with doing that because if you're flying people, celebrities or whatever from different countries, we all know that there are travel restrictions that are you know involved in all of those things that we're going to have to address. So I'm not sure that hub production necessarily 
really helps you. What does help in production is some kind of precinct, like a closed set. So one of our shows is, is a makeover show set in a salon, and that makes our life easier. People do have to quarantine. You have quarantined them for some time before. There's an awful lot of testing going on. So you just have to think it through beforehand. But I think that if you work in formatted entertainment, in unscripted, you're quite used to those quite contrived precincts that you've set up. And it's just an extra layer of production thought that you have to that has to go into it. Before we get into the formats, I just want to ask about your clients' requirements. Are they, have they changed because of the events of 2020? I think that we find now when we are pitching an idea and when we write our decks and do the promos, we absolutely have to mention that this is easily produced under COVID or has been made under COVID. And you have to certainly, when you go and pitch to the channels in the UK, they will expect you to have those things in place and to have budgeted for them. So what we find now is that it has become a bit of a selling point. If we can say, for instance, District Z, it was shot under COVID conditions and regulations. And I think that just it just helps the buyers understand that it's entirely possible and doable and we have done it and therefore we can apply those regulations as part of the production package and Bible. Well, you've mentioned District Z a little bit. Let, let's talk about yeah. that because it's, it's probably top of the list on your new slate. And it involves zombies, am I right? Tell me about it. <laughs> yes. So this is a huge, big physical game show and a, and a brilliant set just outside Paris. And it involves five celebrities. It's shot through the night. They have to undertake a series of quite big, big physical challenges, which are done under time constraints, but they're also being constantly tested by zombies who can steal their lives and uh, make uh, finishing the challenge successfully a little bit difficult. It's really fun. The zombies are, you know, they're very child friendly, scary enough to sort of matter, but not so terrifying that they're going to have nightmares, but really involves comedians and sportsmen and celebrities working together, trying to do these very funny challenges in order to win money for a charity. And I think it's very, very much taking us out of the world that we're in today. It's very fantastical. It's a really beautifully shot, big, expensive looking show. And yes, we have a second series being shot in June for TF1 and very much hoping to welcome some other countries there as well. And uh, a bit of a change, Mum's Famous and Unfiltered. Tell us about that one. So Mum's Famous and Unfiltered is this show made by R Productions, which is a subsidiary of Satisfaction. And they are really doing well with reality shows. They've done a couple, which again, they have shot over the summer. They've done it through the COVID lockdown and restrictions. But this is a show that has just done phenomenally well for TFX, the French channel. So much so that they've now commissioned 250 episodes. And it is exactly what it says on the tin, which is basically celebrity mums with children, usually quite small children, are following them in their everyday lives as they deal with motherhood and parenting and being famous and everything else. So it's a way into their lives, but done really, really well. And I think it surprised everyone with how brilliantly doing for TFX and it just keeps getting recommissioned. It's a daily show on Monday, Friday, so high volume, low cost, and we're really hoping that's going to appeal to a lot of channels. Uh, another one from uh, Satisfaction Group, Villa of Broken Hearts. So the Villa of Broken Hearts, what our production do really, really well is they pull together these formats and they tend to then spin out from other formats. So Battle of the Couples and Villa of Broken Hearts is basically people that have been broken hearted going through a fairly rigorous reality process with an 
an expert who tries to get to the bottom of why they can't have successful relationships or why their hearts have been broken. And uh, we've optioned that in several territories. And Battle of the Couples is actually couples going through some challenges to to test their relationships. And uh, that is currently being produced in Greece and again, under lockdown. So our productions have an incredible track record in producing these long running reality shows. And these two shows both did really well for us at Format Festival uh, because I think people are looking for reality and they want long running daily reality. Any other uh, highlights of the format slate you want to focus on? Yes. So our German offices have just produced a pilot for a German channel called Second Chance Salon. And it's a makeover show. And I think there's been a lot of makeover shows over the years. We know they all do really well. I think we're all in the mood for a good, warm makeover show. But this is about people, they come into a salon. So again, it's a precinct and the salon is visited by people who have stories to tell. So for instance, we had a young homeless guy who had a job interview to go to and he needed uh, to look and feel good about that. We had a woman with, with cancer who needs to feel good about herself and the clip that we show at the format showcase is a guy whose life hit rock bottom he was sent to prison and uh, when he came out he was in quite a bad way so he enters the salon having just been released from prison to have a makeover so what's so great about this show is just it's very authentic it's very warm it's about getting into people's lives through the chair of a salon with a really nice reveal at the end of it and yes that's been piloted for a German channel so that's called Second Chance Salon. I think there's one in sickness and in hell. Yes. So our Brazilian company, Floresta, they made a show called In Sickness and in Hell. And this sends couples who are engaged into a pretty tough environment where they have to test their relationship and they have to be together and undergo all sorts of challenges. And at the end of it, they have to decide whether they still want to get married. It did really well. It went out on Multishow, which is a Brazilian channel, and uh, it's been recommissioned for a second series. So Floresta and Elisabetta Zanatti, who's the MD, will be talking a little bit about that at the format showcase and showing the clip and talking about the changes to series two. But again, that was one, another reality show for us that did really really well just lastly i think there's one impossible science so impossible science is a bit of a passion piece for me really it's uh it's the world's greatest he's the champion magician of the world it's a guy called jason latimer uh he's a very good magician obviously but he's also a science educator and during lockdown we decided that we were going to start producing some educational short videos where he uses magic to teach children science so we've now teamed up with the los angeles school districts to get that content out to all of their students but we launched it's a digital it's a youtube channel called impossible science and that's been probably our first real original digital only piece of content so really exciting to see where that goes and we hope it will expand into a sort of a wider content brief but at the moment we are just producing shorts every week for that to satisfy all those poor homeschoolers around the world who need something to show their children god help us all that brings us neatly onto the next question i'm interested in obviously the events of 2020 weren't just limited to COVID and lockdown, but obviously a, a massive boom in, in streaming. I'm, I'm interested in what that means for the, the format business, because obviously selling a format to a global streamer is a very different proposition to selling a format territory by territory to national broadcast. Tell us how, what, about the difference. Well, I think streamers are a very important part of our business. You're absolutely right. We've had to sort of adjust our way of thinking because I think, you know, for us, we were very much about the original business model, which we still are, which is about licensing to as many different territories as you can. But there's a really good, I think it's a really good business to be had with Netflix. I think they are becoming slightly more flexible in their deal makings and also, I think, far more interested in making different local variations of formats. So we 
are very committed to these streamers to coming up with some really good, big, high quality content for them. And we'll be focusing on that in the next year or so. So you're absolutely right. The business model is different, but we have to be flexible and change because, you know, the streamers are not going anywhere. Uh, That content is incredibly important to us. So we still um, we still will be focusing as well on the original business model and trying to find content that can travel the world. But, you know, Netflix and Amazon and all the local streamers as well are absolutely part of our business going forward. And uh, we'll be looking at that very closely and trying to come up with content uh, for them too. Have you had any success with selling to those streamers, whether it's global or, or local listeners? We have actually. Stellify were the first company to get an unscripted uh, show away with Lynch. So we did that, gosh, two or three years ago now. We also had Million Pound Menu on there. Now, of course, we have The Crown, which is not sadly not in my department, but, uh, you know, it is a sense we have a really good relationship, particularly with Netflix. And we talk to the commissioners all the time uh, about coming up with content for them. So, um, yes, we have had uh, we've had a reasonable amount of success with the, the streamers. And, um, you know, I think they are very much, the messages we're getting from them is they're very much open for business when it comes to unscripted. Now, with all the buyers, the global buyers' attention on the UK this month, I've just got a couple of questions about the UK's position in the international format business. I mean, over the last two decades or more, the UK has established itself as one of the top exporters of unscripted formats. Is that is that still the case? I think it is. I think it's changed an awful lot in the last 10 years. I mean, I think there was a number going around 10 years ago that we were responsible for 45% of all original content. And I think that's certainly dropped down to 20s. And in a way, I think that's a good thing because I think it, it, people want their own local versions of shows. There's also far more developers and producers of content than there were 10, 20 years ago. So the competition is very, very stiff. So I'm not sure that we will ever see, uh, you know, another who wants to be a millionaire in terms of the success and getting that into, I think that was in 120 territories at one point. I'm not sure we'll ever see that again. I think that one of the reasons the UK has been so good is that the commissioners were much better in the UK than a lot of other countries. And so there was a real incentive for producers to be developing their own stuff. What I would say is that it's so important is that our channels continue to take risks because otherwise what you often get from other countries is uh, we're only interested if it's got track record. Now, someone's got to take that risk, put a show on television, create that track record. When you look at things like Bake Off and, you know, Strictly Come Dancing, someone took a risk on those shows. So I think that there's no lack of creative inventiveness in the UK, for sure. There's plenty of production companies who are really excellent producers. I just think it's so important that the channels keep taking risks because that is how we'll have another hit. If we keep following each other, we just go around in a great big circle uh, with endless singing shows. <laughs> I mean, there seems to be a, a sort of a, a dilemma because obviously you want to sell formats into the UK, but you also want the UK to take those risks and originate their own, which uh, which would yeah. undermine the need for your formats to license. How do you manage that, that balance? I would say, actually, interestingly, I'd say the UK channels are much more open to international formats than they ever were before. So now they're really interested in knowing, has this been big in France or has this been big in you know Germany or Korea, for example, as we know is the hot property from the last year. So I think it sort of works both ways. But I still think that the British commissioners are really open to paper formats. And in fact, I would say compared to pitching around the world, it's still the UK that are most open to take formats that have no track record. They will ask the question of who's producing this. Is it the right producer? Will they deliver it? You know, that's still really, really important. But again, we have those producers in place. But, you know, I just think there's more content than ever before flying around. And so the reasons for commissioning something are a little bit more complicated 
complicated than is this a great idea. It is about the producer. It's about the content, the budget, all of those things, the deliverables. You have to have a perfect storm these days to get this stuff away. Now, the UK scene, particularly in the indie sector, a lot of consolidation and mergers and acquisitions. Do you think there's a sort of a trade-off between a consolidated business and a creative business? That's a very good question. I think you just have to, if you are a great big corporation, you've got to let your creatives run their own businesses, have their own ideas and not be too all over them. I've worked in development for 20 odd years. And if you work in development, you have to be an optimist, but you also have to sometimes go, I don't know, that looks absolutely crazy. Would I do it? I don't know. And let your creatives give it a go because I think the next breakout hit is going to be something. I mean, look at the Mars Singer. You know, I think we all turned that one down. Almost of us did, apart from one very clever US exec. So I absolutely hope that a brilliant idea will still rise to the top. But I think if you are a great corporation, you've got to let your creators do what they do best, which is create, make brilliant sizzles, go out and pitch and not cover them with corporate layers uh, and just be supportive when they need some a bit of extra funding or a little bit of clout. That's what we're here for, really, to support the creatives in, in coming up with those new ideas. You, you mentioned earlier about some of the countries that are sort of challenging the UK for its share of the international format business. Which of those countries? Are- well, I think Korea, for sure, and that is because of the Mars Singer. And this we've seen this happen before. Israel gets really hot. And then uh, I think Korea, because of the Mars Singer. And so everyone wants to talk to the Korean producers and get all of their ideas. And, you know, we've done it too. We've talked to the creators of the Mars Singer and had a look at all of that. And that's just, I think that's just the way of the world. But I think we're also starting to see some great ideas from France, you know, as we've talked about. But in the both scripted area and the unscripted area, I think people are really opening their eyes to countries like France. I think Scandinavia has been really interesting for some time now. Certainly that, you know, and Holland for sure for a long time. Uh, Holland has been seen as one of the big originators of great formats. So I think the world is much more open than it used to be. But certainly the two that I would say at the moment would be Korea and France. Looking back on the sort of tumultuous events of the last 12 months, what are the other opportunities that you see that those events have created and how do you how are you sort of tackling them? I think over the last year, because we've had the time to think about these things, and one of the things we obviously do want to be doing is creating content for the streamers and for the big channels. But I think it's about looking at content on a much more broader scale, you know, looking at the digital side of things, looking at content and treating them more as brands than just TV shows or just one aspect. Of, of what these could be. I think one of the things we realised that we're particularly good at, we're very good at brands. We're good at Jeopardy and we're good at Millionaire and we're good at Dragon's Den. And I think it's about taking a big step back and just going, how do we exploit these in, in a much broader way than uh, just licensing them to the territories? You know, what is the apps and the gaming side of things? What is the merchandise and the content? And, you know, you'll see that actually we launched the Dragon's Den YouTube channel that's done phenomenally well. And that is just flipping Dragon's Dragon's Den around the world in the UK. We've done Latin America. We're going to be doing Australia and I think the US. So I think it's actually given us a beat to go, we've got these juggernaut brands. What are we doing with them exactly? And that's one side of it, which is the existing brands. But when we develop new ideas now, how can we think about that in a much broader ancillary way where television is one aspect of it, but what are the other five revenue drivers that we can look at as Sony and to make the most of what we got. And I think just looking at your back catalogue and just realising the value of the back catalogue has been really important for us this year too. I think I think I've probably covered them all. I, I think our plans are always to find the next big hit. I think that never stops every year. That's uh, that's uh, what we're looking at. We want to go big. We want to come up with some really, really big 
big ideas this year, uh, and that's where our focus will be, um, uh, particularly with Satisfaction in France and with our UK opcos and our American studios. That's where we're going to be focusing in on and really driving our creative weight and a bit of uh, sort of financial muscle into developing some really big shows. That's hopefully in a year's time, I'll, I'll be able to uh, back myself up with that. But that's our plan. Sarah Edwards from Sony Pictures Television talking to Ed Waller. Nick Kerwin became known as one of the UK's hottest production talents when he sold his indie Firefly to Endemol Shine, with the business renamed Dragonfly, and then moving on to start The Garden, later sold to ITV. He's now running a new venture called Matisse, acting as an advisor, consultancy and investor to production companies in all genres. The firm recently purchased a minority stake in UK indie Minnow, has been helping clients navigate the COVID-19 pandemic and trying to forecast what might come next. He spoke with Clive Whittingham. Matisse is an advisory service that uh, looks after clients who are indies, who are trying to run the best indies they can run. And we give them advice in a very hands-on, detailed, bespoke way based on our experience. Your experience before this with Dragonfly and the, the Garden was uh, with production companies, factual production companies, formats, some some big shows. Why come out of that and go into, into this company? Well, I did think about doing another production company sort of slightly tickled me the idea of doing three but I sort of felt like it would be slightly unimagined of me to do the same thing again and I mean I, I had I had such a good ride and I've enjoyed Dragonfly in the Garden so much that I didn't sort of feel like I needed to do the same thing again but I love telly and I love the industry and the people I wanted to stay in that and I also felt that I had something still to offer and um, wanted to do something that I found interesting and enjoyable for myself but at the same time I sort of felt like I wanted to put something back and be helpful and try and enhance people who are trying to make the best fist of it they can in the in the industry. What gap in the market does uh, does Matisse fill? I mean sort of day to day or week to week what service does it provide specifically? That's a good question I mean there's 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 a lot of very clever helpful people out there who are around who you can turn to if you need a business affairs lawyer or you want an M&A advisor or you know if you want um, I mean there's accelerator programs to help you find an investor there's all these things but but what there isn't really is anyone who's out there who will just completely be in your corner and either help you with a specific project that's you've got some knotty problem or you've got an opportunity you want to make the most of or somebody who is going to be with you for the long term to really help you do as well as you can and help you achieve your ambitions and so we're incredibly bespoke there's only apart from our wonderful assistant Ma there's only uh, the three of us Edwina Silva Scarlett Ewans and me uh, we've all worked together for a long time and we all have slightly different kinds of experience and track records but we we really roll our sleeves up for our clients and, and are there for them and for a lot of them for the long haul Is this a service for, for younger smaller production companies who can sort of turn to someone who's sort of been there seen it and done is, is that the idea? Uh, it's, for, it's for anyone. I mean, uh, we, we, we have one or two clients who are, who are tiny and growing and doing really well, startups or relaunches, but also right through to established companies who are quite chunky. We've got companies in the uh, £15 million turnover bracket. And of course, you know, because we've run companies that are both startups, 
and also right through to 20 plus million pound companies, then uh, we feel like we can cover all bases. Uh, likewise, genres, because as well as the experience you listed there, I've also then spent quite a long time on the, uh, the Channel 4 Growth Fund, where I was on the advisory board there, and I was mentoring companies of all different genres. So we work with companies in any genre, not just factual. We have a sort of specialty in the nations and regions. It's not exclusively nations and regions. Some of our clients in London, but most of them are in the nations and regions because we wanted to set about helping them as much as we possibly could. Yeah, I mean, nations and regions has been a big sort of, well, it was a big theme before COVID at, at Edinburgh and events like that. It sort of feels like it's not just lip service anymore, that it is actually a focus of broadcasters. Is that is that fair? No, I think that that's true. There definitely felt like there was a sort of turn of the wheel uh, fairly recently and broadcasters got more serious about it. I mean, you know, the BBC was already hitting its targets when Channel 4, you know, had ambitious new targets and, of course, moved out into the nation's regions. I think a lot of the really excellent work in, in that field slightly got overshadowed by uh, the, the uh, uh, coronavirus coming in um, and everybody, of course, turned their attention to that. But nevertheless, nations and regions feels more important than it used to. And I think part of our kind of mission, if you like, was that the sort of feeling that if the kind of firepower of the suppliers in the nations and regions was a tiny bit underpowered then you know what could we do to try and soup it up a bit to help the broadcasters meet their targets and help all those indie bosses out there um, do better. How hands-on are you and your company with physical productions and and ideas that your clients are are having because I I should imagine as as a creative mind you must miss that a a little bit. I mean we're not execing programs and we're not generally you know pitching ideas and having ideas for clients. I mean inevitably when we're talking about development we do tend you know sometimes you just have an idea and sometimes uh, uh, so I mean I'll, I'll be as creative as I can be in that process and likewise Edwina um, and, and there, there is one idea in play at the moment that is actually uh, Edwina's that's quite quite chunky and looks like it might happen but generally that's not what we set out to do and it's not what we promise our clients what we do promise our clients on the development front is to uh, really help uh, maximize the chances that they'll win work and that can be anything from looking at their proposals looking at their development strategy and trying to improve that, helping with the team, looking at how, what their systems and processes are for development and really trying to get all of that match fit. And likewise with production, we're not actually making programmes, we're not a production company, but we are able to help with all aspects of production right through from business affairs negotiations in the first place through to health and safety and trying to find the right team and uh, trying to just be creatively good advisors on a production. And we play quite a detailed, active part on one of two quite big productions lately, um, one of which we played a part in it at the broadcaster's request. Oh, right. That's interesting. You've also done recently um, a deal with Minnow, a minority stake and different involvement with them. Tell us a little bit about them, first of all, and then and then also expand on the on the deal for us, if you would. Sure. Well, we, we've actually been working with Minnow for a little while. We, we, I mean, as is sometimes the case, we might start with a sort of specific project and it might develop into a longer term relationship. That's what's happened with this. We're now uh, working with Minnow for the long term and I mean we're talking many years and um, yes we're a, a minority shareholder uh, we don't have any executive authority uh, that the company is still run as before by Morgan and Claire and Sophie the senior management team uh, and we give the best advice that we possibly can to them we're across all the important aspects of the business and we meet them very often and we try to be as helpful as we can but in the end it's their decision it's uh, it's their company is it is there a particular reason you progressed into like taking a stake in that business as as opposed to just providing services? I mean, we've deliberately designed our kind of fee structure in a way that's very 
flexible and omnivorous. So, you know, some people are very uh, reluctant to give away equity share options, those kinds of things, understandably. And some people are very reluctant to give away actual money uh, and would rather give away bits of the company. And some people want to kind of mitigate each, so they do a bit of both. So we, we're really up for any kind of conversation about all of that. And we try to come up with a, a, a kind of payment structure that is suits the company. Uh, and in this case, we've ended up coming to an arrangement with Miller, which is the one that they wanted. Let's wind back to the start of 2020. How is the business going there? What, what was your direction of travel? And how has the coronavirus changed things for your company? Sure, well, we, we, we launched in, what, about Easter 2019. I mean, essentially, we sort of set out our stall and decided we'd work with a, a quite a variety of clients and, you know, do our best for all, all sorts of different companies. I think we've become a bit more selective as we've gone along, as we've kind of learned what we're best at. And also when, you know, we've had quite a lot of interest in Matisse, so we, it means that we can be a little bit choosier. But every one of the clients we're working with, we're delighted to be looking after. And, and it's, you know, it's a lot of fun and, and they're all incredibly nice people. I think coronavirus, the effect that that's had, obviously that's had a big impact on the industry and clients have slightly different needs as a result. It's tougher for a lot of people. There's opportunity in some ways for a lot of people as well. And some people, it's, it's sort of made them kind of reflect a lot on their business and their future and so on. Uh, so we've actually been busier and also we've been able to be busier because of, you know, Zoom and so on <laughs> sort of meant that we can be more efficient than we were. I mean, you can imagine if we, if our emphasis is on nations and regions, then, you know, making the point of going to people's offices and seeing how they run and going all over the country was really enjoyable, but it means you might only have one meeting in one day or two days, whereas now it's sort of much more back-to-back. So our capacity is greater. That said, we're very, very watchful about capacity because, as I said, there's only three of us doing the, the work, you know, the interaction with the companies, and we obviously need to make sure that we're available to them and have enough time for everybody. So we, we limit how many companies we'll work with. Is it difficult to provide advice in a, a pandemic because none of us have none of us have faced this the industry has never faced this in in modern times i mean i presume one of your strengths is like i say you've been there seen it and done it you can provide advice from your career but at the moment none of us know really from one week to the next what things are, are going to look like so how is it difficult to provide advice in that situation well luckily i'm not the chief scientific advisor so i don't have to give advice about coronavirus in terms of like advice about how to produce a program during the virus there's, there's already quite a lot of good advice out there so you know um, that's available and we kind of co-opt a lot of that but then sometimes you know specific challenges are thrown up that relate to making a program during coronavirus I, mean, I can think of one production where we had to do quite a lot of uh, work on health and safety for that for that program now we're not health and safety advisors either but how to implement a program of health and safety during coronavirus and make sure that the broadcaster was satisfied with it it's, it's difficult for me to describe what this was because it's a very specific program quite a big show uh, that had specific needs that we played quite an active part in in that, uh, and we were the program was com- commissioned on on condition that we were we were involved. How do you see uh, the production sector progressing through this year? Is it going to be the UK seems to be doing quite well with the with the vaccine? Is it just going to be taps back on and and back to normal, or as best you can? How do you see it going? Well, I, I'm I'm optimistic. I mean, I suppose on the on the kind of on the pessimistic side, first of all, I I think you know it, it obviously is seriously hitting the industry. 
industry in lots of ways. And, and some of the smaller suppliers have suffered, of course. And, you know, I think a lot of them will do okay and will survive. But inevitably, I think some will go by the wayside. So I think there'll be just fewer suppliers, although, of course, there's new ones springing up all the time as ever. But I think beyond that, I'm optimistic. I, I do think that, you know, there's people want content, don't they? I mean, we've seen that during the pandemic. People want content. Uh, everyone's hungry for it globally. And the UK is incredibly well placed to produce fantastic content. And there's an incredibly creative uh, and flourishing creative community in the UK. So I, I think that that will translate into plenty of work, uh, lots of opportunity uh, and ability to make a, a good living as well. But I just think that there will be, a, you know, there's a little bit of a survival of the fittest thing going on at the moment. And therefore, I suppose a couple of things on that is the companies that have less of a kind of clear, strong identity. Uh, I mean, identity is something I've long talked about. I think having a strong identity as a supplier is incredibly important. So the ones that have less of a strong identity, I think are less likely to pick up the work. Uh, and also, I think another factor as well is that the days in the past where you could kind of be a slightly fumbling, cheerful creative who could run a company. Uh, I mean, it's different if you're essentially a filmmaker and you want to make one film a year and that's your company. But if you really want to run a proper indie, then just to sort of fumble about with it and be a lovely creative and pitch ideas and not really pay much attention to the business and or not have anybody around you paying much attention to the business. I, I just think those days are gone. You know, you have to be smarter now. You have to be more business-like. Otherwise, you, you, I think it's best of all that broadcasters find it a bit intolerable. And secondly, I just don't think you'd be able to make enough of a margin out of the productions um, in order to survive. So you have to be a bit smarter, a bit more strategic. And if you're not, then you know, I don't think you're, you're likely to make it wrong. When you say, when you talk about identity, that's more than just being a factual prodco, uh, a formats prodco, or is it about having a specific sort of show that you can hang your hats on? You know, we're the ones that do first dates. I mean, when you talk about identity, could you just sort of dig into that a little bit? Yes, I mean, it can be any of those things. Uh, and it might be that you've got a sort of marquee show that everyone knows you for, uh, or it might be that it's to do with the talent at the company. It might be, more of a broader track record of things that you've done, or it could be, and often is something a bit more intangible. I remember um, when Magnus and I launched Firefly, as it was called then, before it became Dragonfly, there was a particular moment when I think Hamish Mercura was head of documentaries at Channel 4, and I remember hearing him saying something like he wanted a Firefly sort of show or something, and I didn't know what he meant by that, or what he had in his head by that particularly, and I'm not sure that we had a particular thought in our head about what that was, but the fact that that he did have a thought about it, that it, he wanted something Farfly-ish. I, I remember thinking, well, that, that's significant. I like that. And, and I do <laughs> think that, that that counts for something. So it's good if you're, even if you have, also, even if you have a different identity for different customers, I think that's okay. You know, Ben Frow might see you one way and Patrick Holland might see you another way. But that's all right as well, as long as they see you in some way. Because there's only so much pie to divvy up. And as we all know, broadcasters tend to sort of think oh well I need I need some of these I need some of these I need some of these so they tend to go to this supplier for this thing this supplier for this thing and and I think sticking to your core brand and telegraphing it quite consciously is quite important yeah it's when they start knocking on your door rather than the, uh, the other mm -hmm. way around I guess how do we square the circle we've, we've just said obviously content at the minute we're just locked in at home we're watching on stream like nobody everybody's watching more than ever before however budgets are going are challenged and are going to be challenged because the economy is obviously going to take a hit from this. How do we square that circle both as broadcasters and producers of needing to feed this massive 
hungry beast uh, of content, but also probably for a while having less money to spend on it. Well, I mean, obviously, my my, my primary concern in all, in that in that clever question is is the indies really. And um, in the days of the the garden, our strategy was to develop IP for UK broadcasters that we hoped would then travel. So we wanted to own the IP, and you, it was quite hard to make that much money on production budgets. But you hoped that some of the back end would then make up the difference. And that was sort of our model at the garden, largely. So that's quite different from a company, say, like Raw, who have quite a different model, where they were producing, you know, a lot of programs for an American market, um, where they wouldn't have had a very strong rights position, but they would be, you know, because they would be getting a decent margin out of the volume deals that they they were doing. And so they were completely different models. Now, I think that the where you want to be is doing a bit of both. Um, so producing for the BBC, Channel 4 and so on, but also you really want to get into that streamer game, of course. And although your rights position will be weak there, you're likely to have bigger budgets and be able to make um, a, a sort of decent margin out of those. So I think you need more than ever a mixed ecology in your production slate, because if you, for example, solely relied on you know only working for a UK PSB, then yes, you might have a good rights position, but the tariffs are are kind of quite challenging at the moment and you might find yourself not not really you know able to survive on that and likewise if you only made programs for um you know streamers and so on then you, you're not really participating in that distribution market which would be a pity if you had a hit that traveled golden time for unscripted at the minute with scripted being more challenged by the covid regulations or is that just a, a broad brush stroke that people like me stick in features because it's uh, it's easy to say it's so funny this golden time thing comes up because- <laughs> I've seen it so many times. It's that one moment. It's a golden time for for scripted, and so factual is dead and no one's interested in whatever and then you know before you know it it's all about premium unscripted like you know there's a bit of that at the moment isn't there and you know dramas are challenging and it goes round and round and round I, I tend to sort of think that whatever the golden time is that we're in at the moment it, it, you're, you're only about five minutes away from the golden time for the opposite uh, later so I've, I've never been that worried about that I've never felt those cycles have hit the business that that hard I mean obviously there are specific COVID challenges at the moment but hopefully they won't they won't last too long and also, actually, I think that the film and TV industry has, you know, in some respects, had uh, had a lucky escape. I mean, it hasn't been as bad as it might have been. Yeah, you wouldn't be overly troubled or alarmed if you owned a drama indie at the moment, specifically. Well, I mean, there are interruptions to the business, aren't they? So, you know, if your if your business were, you know, you could have cash flow issues um, as your sort of your productions are, are interrupted and so on. But in terms of what the where the demand is, there seems to be demand for for everything at the moment. Um, I, I think. If, if anything, I'd say that there's, there's a particular demand for sort of premium content, isn't there? Sort of fantastic glossy dramas and also fantastic glossy documentaries, for example. There's a, there's a lot of hung, hunger for all of that. Whilst, you know, on the UK PSB, some, some of the tariffs have been quite low, as we know that Channel 4's tariffs for um, even peak time um, unscripted was was particularly low for a period. But then that, that seems to have recovered, recovered a bit. But I mean, yeah, I do think whatever the cycle is, the, the cycle immediately changes and that's also the same with MA activity you know that just recently it was all about scripted companies being attractive to buyers and you know now 
you see sort of companies that are in the unscripted world coming to the fore much more, particularly premium unscripted. Although I would say with that, it tend, you know, that it, it's helpful if you're working for the streamers in particular because that makes you more attractive than if you're not. You've been been through a couple of some some pretty big mergers and acquisitions in in your time. How do we see that M and A market? I mean, a, a, a company is going to be more reticent because of the economy, but also smaller companies might want to consolidate because you know say safety and bigger numbers. Do we think M and A will just continue as it as it was? Well, I, I think M and A activity is continuing, and even though like with genres like the conversation we've just had, you know, it goes through cycles. You know, if ever there's a slightly fallow patch on it, the M and A activity, it then seems to bounce back quite quickly. So whenever you have these discussions about M and A activity tailing off a little, it is never very long before it sort of <laughs> is suddenly flourishing again. So I think I think that'll always be a busy marketplace, to be honest, even if they sort of have, you know has uh, slight fluctuations along along the way uh, uh, until there aren't any actual indies left. Of course, <laughs> I mean there there are fewer of them than there used to be that haven't already been snappled up. But um, but then of course more and more always being launched. And finally, obviously we we talk all the time about it being a people business, and we've already spoken about how you do all your meetings. Or we all do our meetings on Zoom now rather than going to Can or traveling around for pitches. Do you think the industry will go back to how it was when we're allowed out of the house and off the end of the road? Or do you think there'll be lasting hangover about the way we do business from this COVID time into uh, more normal times? Yeah, that's. I mean, that's a question that everyone's talking about a lot, isn't it? And not just in relation to their television life, they were talking about it in relation to the rest of their lives. So, I mean, I certainly the conversations that I have with people I think the the mood that I feel that people have about this and certainly that I do is that there are things that we miss I'm talking about in broader life as well as work life there are things that we miss there are things that are good to do in the old way sometimes but then I think also everyone's discovered that there have been some good things about that have come out of this terrible virus that's affected everybody so so unkindly and there are some good things too in all of that in relation to how how we work uh, so my, my hope is that we keep what's good from the recent difficult past uh, and we also go back to some of what was good before and we blend the, the two together there are certainly some things about how we used to work that I wouldn't want to return to and that I think are, are better done in this way. I'd want a, a mixture. Nick Kerwin from Matisse, speaking with Clive Whittingham. That's all for this episode. There'll be more from the podcast next week. But in the meantime, stay safe and up to date with all the latest international TV industry news by following C21 online, on mobile and social media. My name's Jonathan Webdale. Thanks for listening. <laughs>